This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 12th of February 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, papers with Simon Brook, who's a journalist and a communications consultant, formerly with the Conservative Party here in the UK. And we also hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. I'm currently writing a script for I've Been Bitten, a comedy cartoon about a family who sells their children to buy bitcoins. And I'm also trying to get backers for Token for a Ride, in which Adam Driver plays a Svengali who persuades people that NFTs are really art. Brace yourself, Hollywood. Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller rounds up what we learned this week. Croatia's numismatists had chosen to adorn their new spare change with an image of a marten perched on a branch. That's marten as in the semi-cute carnivorous mammal, not a bloke called marten, which would just be weird. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. The United States and Europe stepped up their warnings of an imminent attack while the Kremlin rejected a joint EU-NATO diplomatic response to its demands to reduce tensions as disrespectful. Russia has amassed more than 100,000 troops on the Ukraine border, but it denies its plans to invade. However, multiple countries have ordered their citizens to leave Ukraine. Finland has sealed a deal to buy dozens of F-35 stealth warplanes from the United States. The northern European nation, which borders Russia and was historically neutral during the Cold War, signed the $9.4 billion agreement on Friday to buy 64 radar-evading Lockheed Martin jets. While the planes will not enter service for several years, the agreement reflects non-NATO Finland's deepening cooperation with the Western Military Alliance. And in Canada, protesters opposing pandemic restrictions flouted a court order and emergency rules, continuing to occupy a vital Canada-US trade corridor early today, hours after a judge granted an injunction to end the blockade that has crippled North America's auto industry. The protests have inspired similar convoys and protests in France, New Zealand, Australia and the United States. I'm Georgina Godwin and that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, now it's time to have a look through this morning's newspapers, and I'm pleased to say that joining me today is Simon Brook, journalist and communications consultant. And I did say in your intro at the top, <laughs> formerly of the Conservative Party. We won't Party. let it go, will you, the Conservative <laughs> Party thing? Yeah, exactly. But in fact, we're not going to be looking at, uh, at UK politics at all today because it's just got to the point of such ridiculousness that I think it probably doesn't warrant. <laughs> well, no, this is the thing, absolutely, with uh, the, the police uh, now issuing this questionnaire to, to uh, Tory leader and Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Um, and it, it's interesting that, uh, it, it, as you say, around in the background almost, we've got possibly World War III starting. So I suppose it does make him very difficult for Boris Johnson to be a sort of leader on the world stage and for Britain to position itself as a serious player here when he is in so much trouble at home and for such a ridiculous uh, mm. Uh, such a ridiculous problem, you know, such a small problem in many ways, but something so sort of undignified, really, if you like. Absolutely. Well, let's look at this 
potential World War Three. I mean, that's very alarmist language, but it is the language that people are using in newspapers, particularly uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, all are saying that an invasion is imminent. Well, unpick this for us. Let's start with the New York Times. Yeah, so the New York Times leading, as many of the papers are, on the latest events, uh, a question about, uh, as the paper points out, it was originally thought that President Putin would wait until the end of the Winter Olympics, which, of course, are taking place in Beijing at the moment, uh, that, uh, that that carrying out an invasion of Ukraine during that time would embarrass his new friend, President Xi of China. But now the New York Times and other public other uh, papers reporting that we could see some kind of action, possibly a full-scale invasion as, as early as Wednesday. So it does look as if things are, are moving a lot faster. Um, and interesting, the New York Times is reporting uh, quotes, for instance, from Michael McFall, a former US ambassador to Russia. What I do know, given that we don't know very much, what I do know about Putin is that he likes uncertainty. Uh, and McFall says he's leveraged the in the past for advantage. He's forcing Biden's hand and everybody else's. Um, and so there's generally a feeling that nobody really seems to know what President Putin wants, perhaps even not President Putin or something. But certainly there's a, there's a, the theme of much of the coverage is that Putin is very much making the weather here, that uh, leaders from the West, uh, from Europe and obviously the US are, are very much um, paying court to him. And, uh, you know, there's a phone call later today with uh, President Biden um, and possibly uh, another conversation as well with President Macron, who, of course, went to see him last week. So very much according to all the coverage, it does seem to be that the ball is in President Putin's court. Mm. There's an interesting opinion piece in in the Washington Post. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Jennifer Rubin in the Washington Post, um, just looking at this whole question of uh, whether, I mean, is this madness really by Russia? Would it defy logic and Russian self-interest, she asks, uh, the prospect of um, significant Casualties, a major so a shock to Russia's already feeble economy um, from sanctions and increased internationalization uh, would make things very difficult uh, for the Russians. Um, so the question is, uh, as, uh, as Jennifer Rubin asked, whether Putin has gone so far out on a limb that he cannot pull back without suffering humiliation. Um, and uh, on the other hand, she also quotes Richard Haas from the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, uh, suggesting that Putin has committed an error that can prove dangerous even for a skilled martial arts practitioner. He's underestimated his opponent and uh, Haas suggesting that even Putin opts for what's described as a limited invasion. He could leave Russia worse off. This would be uh, Russia controlling slightly more territory, but facing new sanctions, a stronger NATO, uh, and having a neighbour whose people have developed a more separate anti-Russian identity. And actually that idea of a stronger NATO, it's, it's interesting, the last few weeks there have been uh, suggestions that actually some countries in Europe, sort of Eastern Europe, who are not members of NATO, have actually been wondering whether, given this new, more aggressive Russia, it might be worth them joining. So in that sense, I suppose that Putin's uh, actions actually have had the opposite of what he wants in that they've bolstered the case for NATO. Mm. Uh, and what about Ukraine itself? Because, of course, there are all sorts of reassuring noises coming out of there, uh, with the leader saying, really, that there is no cause for concern here. Is he going to have to row back on that? Well, it does look like it. It's been interesting that a lot of the coverage has pointed out that uh, Vladimir Zelensky has been saying nothing to look, nothing to see here, move on, not a big problem, don't worry. And obviously you can understand 
uh, the logic in that, that he doesn't want to sow panic and fear uh, amongst uh, Ukrainians. But certainly the recent coverage, the last couple of days really, has been suggesting, again, that events have overtaken him, that even though he's tried to keep this line about uh, keeping things calm with countries around the world, withdrawing their people from Ukraine with increasingly aggressive noises coming from uh, Russia, it does look as if, you know, he is going to have to do a 180-degree uh, U-turn on that. And also there, there have been perhaps unkind, I don't know, coverage that, that a former comedian actually slightly out of his depth here, that he doesn't actually have the stature, the experience to really deal with this really severe and uh, and real threat. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, just, just I mean, so many worrying things to, to, to pick up on uh, around here. Many countries are now telling their nationals they must leave, that there won't be an airlift, they must get out by commercial flights or by any means possible, but do it now. I mean, countries... For instance, Japan, which is not something that I thought we would see. No, absolutely. And again, the New York Times is reporting this, that uh, various countries, uh, well, more and more countries now are, as you say, withdrawing people from Ukraine. And the problem is, as, as various uh, news uh, commentators are pointing out at the moment, again, this all plays into to, to Putin's hands, if you like, because it does make it clear that this situation is very serious. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a way of Putin just demonstrating his power, really, that he can just send these shockwaves through this... Uh, so far hitherto independent country and cause foreign nationals to leave. Um, and, uh, and the problem is, I suppose, you get this sort of snowballing effect, don't you, that the more who leave, other people will have to leave, the more isolated in a way Ukraine looks, appears to be, and, uh, and therefore does that make uh, the prospect of invasion by Russia a slightly more attractive, easier process? Then, of course, you also got to think of other countries as well. Um, you know, the New York Times pointing out that... Uh, that uh, the US has sent uh, 3,000 troops yesterday to Poland. Uh, so the question is, I suppose, what role do these other countries nearby have to play? And, uh, you know, how will they interact with NATO, uh, Poland obviously being a NATO member, and how will they re uh, interact with the West as well? Mm. But, I mean, I'm seeing things on Twitter, like, for instance, here in Kiev, it's not Russian bombs that are falling, it's snow. That You know, <laughs> yeah. a, a lot of quite reassuring stuff coming yeah. out of the country itself. We just don't know is the answer. Uh, no, no. And I think if I was doing the sort of comms for the, the Ukrainian government, I'd be trying to, to, to tread a very fine line between reassuring people, things, don't worry, we've got this under the, this situation under control, let's not panic. But on the other hand, I think you'd also want to, to imply as well that, you know, there's, a, vel there's a, a steel hand in the velvet glove, if you like, that this far and no further, we are confident, we are relaxed. But on the other hand, should uh, Putin become more aggressive, then we will take action just to make it absolutely clear to him that uh, there's no complacency there. Mm, and of course, our news editor, Chris Chermak, currently in quarantine in Kiev. So uh, even luck. though his um, yeah, government's him. urging yeah. him to leave, uh, impossible well, at the it's moment. Well, always the, it's the question for the correspondent, isn't it? Are you the one who really wants to stay there and report how it is? And it's a real dilemma, especially when we're seeing a growing number of journalists being arrested and murdered around the world. It's, it's a dilemma. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I bet he's one that wishes, in fact, the last week he had been home working, which is how <laughs> uh, our uh, editor-in-chief starts his column today, all about, uh, well, the work culture changing. A friend working for a major financial institution is telling me about how they've lost much of their company culture over the past two years 
because of homeworking. He wants to be back in the office full time and misses the bonhomie of being surrounded by colleagues. But now he's been sent an email that's set to make even his endless schedule of video calls less humane. The email reminds staff that if they have their cameras on during calls, this uses more energy than if they are switched off. This, the email underlines, is bad for the environment and the company's eco-mission. So now he faces video conferences where he just speaks into the darkness. I had to Google this information and it turns out that it's probably true. But if the organisation really wanted to trim its digital energy consumption, why not delete its own Facebook page and Instagram account? Because everything stored in the cloud, of course, uses energy. Or how about encouraging its staff to delete all of their social media? But of course, that's not what's going on here. No doubt half a dozen people who can't be asked to put on a shirt for a video call or don't want to reveal that they're living in a mansion have cooked up this excuse. In the end, all these announcements underline a disrespect for the well-being of staff. On the same topic, another contact tells me that his agency is also finally getting some staff back into the office, but they're struggling to get anyone into work on Mondays and Fridays. And he admits he's also fallen into the same pattern. We're all just a bunch of twats, he jokes. Now, I've heard this acronym before, but only ever used in a mocking way. So I like hearing how it's now being owned that the twats, people who only work in the office Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays, now sport the moniker with pride. Another story while we're in rude word territory. I want to buy some loafers but can't decide which ones to get. I've done some online research and clicked on a few links for potentially desirable footwear purchases. A nice Italian brand called Velasco has some good black ones. Turns out they even have a lovely shop near Monocle's offices. Now, for some reason, all their shoes have names. A black Oxford is called Trombi, and there are some very nice derbies called Baraba. But did something get lost when naming the penny loafers? They're sold as Cuntables. I asked Chiara, our culture editor, who is Italian, born and bred, if this meant anything in her language, but she was at a loss to explain the branding. Tom, our head of radio, wondered if someone misheard the company's boss saying that they were very comfortable. I'm working up my courage to go to the shop and ask whether they have any in my size. We were walking home from dinner and I noticed a pigeon jump off a wall and land by my feet. As we progressed down the pavement, he tried to walk in step with us, every now and then cocking his pretty grey head as though he wanted to join in our conversation. If we got too far in advance of him, he might flap his wings and glide a few feet to catch up, but he was clearly more flaneur than flyer. I thought perhaps that he was injured, so we stopped to look at him, but he was in rude health. In the end, we got to a corner and he turned off in one direction, us in another. He may even have waved a wingy goodbye, I think. Have city pigeons become so lazy that they just like to walk to their destinations these days? Will they be demanding miniature segways soon? Have I perhaps discovered a new species of bird? Returning to the world of work, in March, Apple TV is releasing We Crashed, a drama series starring Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway, who play Adam and Rebecca Newman, the founders of WeWork. 
It's funny reading all the knowing commentaries already being written about the series. How the Newmans sold us an overblown real estate company wrapped up as a cultural revolution. How we were duped by their showmanship. But the truth is, people believed them, lapped up their disruptor status. The Newmans may have proved to be daft in the end, but so were a lot of unwise investors. But there's a positive cultural moment here. It feels like writers, movie makers, are beginning to pick apart the pumped up tech tales and narratives that we've been peddled for so long. For example, also coming our way is Bad Blood, a film that will focus on the scandal of Theranos and its founder, Elizabeth Holmes. It's being directed by Adam Mackay and will star Jennifer Lawrence. I've decided to get in on the act and I'm currently writing a script for I've Been Bitten, a comedy cartoon about a family who sells their children to buy bitcoins. And I'm also trying to get backers for Token for a Ride, in which Adam Driver plays a Svengali who persuades people that NFTs are really art, all based on genuine people, I might add. But I seem to be getting most traction for Spin Cycle, which I'm billing as a tale of firm butts and saggy revenue at Peloton. Thank you very much to Andrew Tuck there. And uh, I think we'll return to the subject of Peloton a little bit later on in the programme. And in the intervening time, we've had our delivery of coffee and croissants. So I think our saggy butts might be getting a little <laughs> bit saggy. Oh, fire us up to get back on that Peloton, one of the two. <laughs> but thank you very much to the Monocle Cafe, which is open all day today on Chilton Street. And of course, we have outposts in various places in the world, including at Dufferstrasse 90 in Zurich, where I can heartily recommend everything. Uh, Everything that's on the menu there. So if you are in the mood for a Saturday coffee and perhaps a nibble of something slightly sinful, um, which you can work off on your peloton later, yeah. <laughs> uh, then uh, please do drop into one of our cafes. Now, Simon uh, Simon Brook is still with me here in the studio. Uh, and uh, at least at Monocle Cafe, right now our prices are still stable. But this cannot <laughs> be said of outlets all over the world. Um, but there is a way to spin this into a positive story. Tell us about the, the cost of living increase and what Le Monde is saying. Yeah, um, interesting uh, column uh, by uh, Julien Boisseau in uh, uh, in Le Monde uh, and looking at, I mean, as many of us are going to go out shopping, as you say, we'll be keeping an eye on the prices. But it's really, uh, uh, Julien Boisseau's comment, uh, column is really looking at the fact that prices are, are rising very rapidly for food and fuel and the basics um, uh, in, in many countries around the world. And this is spelling trouble for those countries' dictators and their populist leaders. Um, uh, he points out we've seen riots in countries ranging from Kazakhstan to Ecuador to Malawi um, because people just cannot put food in the fridge and, and petrol in the car sort of thing. And you realise that this is basically what drives people to expel populist leaders. You know, it's not uh, international condemnation of their acts or concerns, I'm afraid, about the way they might treat juries, uh, the, the judiciary and journalists or whatever. As I say, it's the, those very basics. Uh, and he points out, yeah, well, already we've seen, you know, in Turkey... Inflation seems to be rising uh, somewhere around 50%, which is quite terrifying. Uh, and this is because President Erdogan has decided to reduce interest rates, which goes against what any normal economist would tell you. Uh, and in fact, because of that, he's then fired all his advisers who have pointed out that this you know, this, uh, this monetary policy is absolute madness or whatever. Um, as, as this column points out, Narendra Modi has also, in India, has suggested that he might sack the... Uh, uh, the boss of the um, uh, the 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 Indian National Bank as well. Uh, 
about following, you know, concerns about the economic policy. Um, but I mean, it's it's awful, really, because these are ordinary people who, uh, as the column points out, might spend more than half of their income, unlike us in the West, on food and essentials. Um, and prices, a lot of the in these developing countries around the world, according to the UN, have written by some have risen by something like twenty eight percent. So, it's a really sad story in a way that ordinary people are, you know, facing post-COVID, all the trauma that that's brought us as well, and now sort of facing this other challenge, this dilemma about how do they put food on the table. Mm. On the other hand, yeah, as, I say, as you say, we can put a positive spin on this and this might perhaps encourage them to, to take action uh, and bring down some of these rather unpleasant leaders. Yeah, well, let's cross to somebody who tends to put a positive or at least a quirky spin on most things, and that's Andrew Muller. <laughs> We learned this week that former US President Benito Cartman may actually be even weirder than we thought. And bear in mind that this is the benchmark of weird we're working off. And then they have cans of soup. Soup. This week's monologue is once again brought to you by the word soup. Not least because we also learned that one of Donald Trump's acolytes, excitable Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, believes that the threat posed by broadly liquid entrees is even more serious than he does. Not only do we have the D.C. jail, which is the D.C. gulag, but now we have Nancy Pelosi's gazpacho police. So we learned, though cannot say, we were altogether surprised that MTG struggles to tell the difference between the secret police of Nazi Germany and a delicious cold vegetable broth widely enjoyed across the Iberian Peninsula. In fairness, an easy mistake for a complete idiot to make. But leaving aside this new meaning of the phrase from soup to nuts to return whence we arrived, we learned about President Trump's somewhat unorthodox approach to the archiving of official documents. We learned specifically that in defiance of convention and, you know, the law, Trump was regularly in the habit of tearing official correspondence to bits and flinging it in the bin, leaving, and we are not making this up, long-suffering staff to sticky tape the scraps back together for posterity. And we learned that this was not the end of it. I saw Donald Trump, you know, looking around. He looked very concerned about what, what whatever was exchanged and shared. And what, whatever was on this particular paper seemed to be of great concern to him and something that he did not want the American people to see. So he tore it up like he usually does. But then he put it in his mouth, Allie. So, I, you know, at the time, I know I got a lot of criticism about sharing this story, but it was very bizarre because I've known him for so long. He is a germaphobe. He never, you know, he never puts... Right paper obviously in his mouth. We do have to bear in mind that we are learning this from one of the kind of people who voluntarily went to work for the big dope, in this instance former apprentice contestant Omarosa Manigol Newman who also has a book to flog. But we did learn that if Trump really was in the habit of chewing on the stationery and honestly how surprised would anybody be? Yeah I guess I can say yeah, that. Yeah sounds quite right. Really. Would not be surprised yeah. at all. Yeah. Then one of our panellists on Monocle24's tremendous early evening discussion show The Daily, 1800 UK every weekday, is endowed with the gift of prophecy. Give me some weird, eerie atmospherics and play Justin Quirk from Monday. 
this image of him just habitually shredding official paper. I mean, he's probably eaten some of them. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm sort of picturing this sort of Augustus Gloop character just sort of forcing down handfuls of shredded paperwork. We plan to use Justin's powers wisely and have already booked him back in for the week of the Grand National. Elsewhere, we learned of a minor uproar in the field of Balkan numismatics. What? I'm not sure. Uh, what? I, what? Uh, I don't know that one. Really? No, no. Are you sure? Come on, numismatics, the study of coins and units of currency in general. It is a common expression round our way. Okay, okay. fair enough, but let's move yeah. on quickly. I'll give you that, yeah. I guess. We learned that Croatia had abruptly scrapped the one euro coin which it proposed to issue upon joining the single currency next year. Aww. We were looking forward to it as well. Croatia's numismatists had chosen to adorn their new spare change with an image of a marten perched on a branch. That's marten as in the semi-cute carnivorous mammal, not a bloke called Martin, which would just be weird. Although a case could perhaps be made for Martin Sinkovic of the family of famous Croatian Olympic rowers. And yes, we may be in danger of deviating from the point. Oh, Ah! Just... Get on with it. Which is, we learned, that a British photographer had taken issue with the design, claiming it was copied from one of his pictures. At which, we learned, Croatia had resolved to weasel... ..out of the dispute and ferret... ..out an otter design. Otter, another, is that anything? To avoid any further badgering. And let's have some generic Cuban music. Because finally, we learned from Florida, the and finally state, of possibly the most sensationally ill-judged theme restaurant in the history of catering. One does not require an advanced understanding of Floridian politics to be aware that one key demographic is fervent Cuban non-fans of the ghastly regime of Fidel Castro and its successors. And let us pause at this moment for a mercifully brief snippet of the interminable oratory with which Castro once berated for hours on end his snoring people. But we learned that this extremely salient fact had not been absorbed by the proprietors of Café Habana, a Cuban-Mexican establishment which launched in New York City in 1997 with decor heavy on homage to Castro and his sidekick Che Guevara. Café Habana announced their intention to open a Miami branch this year, which, we learned from local Miami media, may struggle to attract customers not equipped with torches and pitchforks. Lauren, Café Habana says it's inspired by... Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, and communism, and people here in Miami say they have absolutely no appetite for it. He worked on that for some time, didn't he? But like a notional diner whose plate had been cleared away too early, he wasn't finished. Do you think when Cafe Habana arrives here, they're going to be served up a plate of humble pie? What we call in the trade a leading question. But the people of Florida do appear genuinely upset, desisting from wrestling alligators in Waffle House car parks and so forth long enough to register their objections. Miami History 101, you would know not to promote anything pro-Castro or pro-Chile. And they did that. It's a slap in the face, the Cubans. It's, it's, 
it's tone deaf, it's insulting, it's, you're just trying to capitalize off of it. He's, it's egregious. While we learned from the same broadcast that the reporter was also unable to rise above a crack about this proposed Cuban eatery leaving a bad taste, etc., we were disappointed to learn that he had not signed off by noting that it seemed like nobody would be Havana good time. So we have. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much to Andrew, who will never knowingly let a pun pass. <laughs> Bless him. <laughs> um, we were talking about Pelotons earlier, or at least yeah, Andrew Tuck was. He was. Uh, and uh, there is this piece in um, The Age, isn't it? The Melbourne Age. Uh, Where on earth should bulky fitness equipment live in your home? Well, I have to tell you that during lockdown, I acquired one, a cross trainer, and two, a new boyfriend. And the <laughs> <laughs> Which takes up most space? Which is most inconvenient? Or... Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a big guess on that one. But what he's ha- actually done now is because there yeah. is no space for both. Right. The cross trainers now. Out. Oh right, sorry, no, sorry. <laughs> The cross trainers propped up against the wall, and all his jackets hang on it. Oh, clever! <laughs> so you know we've That's managed a good to kind idea. Of negotiate yeah. this. Neither yeah. of us are very fit now, obviously, because right. we can't use them. No, of course, but at least the coats have got somewhere to go. Exactly. So I'm sure you're not alone in that. Yeah. But I did. I, I find that on my Google searches there is a. a, a um, in my history, it shows I have I have put where to put an elliptical trainer. <laughs> really, I'm sure I just have no, they yeah. take the footprint of them. It's yeah. about seven feet. I yeah. mean, it's seven. It's huge. Yeah, huge. well, it is, and I think this is the problem. People bought bought buy these things on Amazon, don't they? As we all did. It's interesting that Peloton's sales I was reading have doubled doubled during lockdown to something like four billion dollars or whatever, which is unbelievable. Obviously, they've now uh, partly because of Mister Mister Big, uh, his little uh, you know the episode there, but they've they've fallen off a of, bit. Yeah, of, but ab- and just like that, yeah, the, just exactly. The uh, to Sex and City, yeah, absolutely. But it's fascinating. Yeah, the number of people who bought these things. Yeah, and the Melbourne Age has this story about uh, about where you should store this uh, equipment whatever I have to say where on earth should bulky fitness uh, equipment live in your home sounds to me like a kind of Google search thing which is probably why they wrote it like that but having written squillions of these feature pieces or whatever it does make me laugh because yeah it, it's a, it's an interesting question isn't it um, but uh, obviously uh, the, the reporter here the writer uh, is looking at what you do about that and it just makes me laugh that the, the typical cross-section of people he's asking about are fashion designers, interior designers, a freelance fashion writer or whatever, so just your typical person in the street or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I have to say I haven't really learnt much from this other than the fact that they really are a... <laughs> nuisance, I have to say, aren't they? Well, it, it does seem to me that many people that, that, that this writer, uh, Damien Woolnuff, has spoken to um, are using them as statement pieces in their home. They're, yeah. they're not trying to hide them. They are, you know, you've got a really expensive peloton. Absolutely. You are going to flaunt it. Exactly. And look how fit I am with my peloton. The fact it's sort of a, a slight layer of dust on it that probably isn't worth looking at. But I think the other problem is, of course, that we had this thing, didn't they, when people working working out from home, yes, it's great because you don't have to then go back from the gym or whatever, you're, you're already at home and you can lie down on the settee with a cigarette or whatever <laughs> your post-workout <laughs> regime might be or whatever. But, of course, the problem is it is that kind of division, isn't it? Because suddenly your home, does it become a gym or not? And uh, there's an interesting quote here from, from somebody that uh, Woolnoth has interviewed saying, it's quite strange to be watching television and have someone beside you breathing heavily, moving to a beat that you don't know with headphones on and glistening with sweat. And you think... I mean, it does sound a bit weird to me. It's slightly rude, actually, if I have to say, but <laughs> we've all been there, haven't we, sort of thing. But it does show Speak how you do yourself. need it. <laughs> That's why you're sitting there watching television. I'm going to 
to stop this now. <laughs> and I'm going to go to my penitent right away. <laughs> Have another croissant. Um, it is, of course, Valentine's Week, uh, Valentine's Day on Monday. So let me just remind you that uh, on Monocle Reads, we have a conversation with two women who have edited a book called Anonymous Sex, 27 of the world's top writers and 27 uh, stories about sex. Not necessarily erotic, but they are all about sex in some way. The uh, wonderful twist to this, though, is that none of the names of the authors are attached to the story, so you just ah, have to guess. guess who's who. <laughs> yeah. That will be interesting. So you can hear that all uh, on Monocle Reads. Do, do uh, grab that from our archives at some point. Uh, Simon, thank you so much thank you. for coming in. That was Simon Brook, and that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. We have croissants to eat, so we need to go. <laughs> Thanks to our, our studio engineer, Nora Hull, and to our producer, Marcus Hippie. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.